I'm Jolie, your branding badass, and welcome to my new podcast, Branding Matters. My guest today is Tina Wells, entrepreneur, business strategist, and best-selling author. Tina is also the founder of Relevant Media, a multimedia content venture serving entrepreneurs, tweens, and culturists with authentic representation. And this woman is a dynamo. She has been recognized by Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business, Essence's 40 Under 40, and so much more. And for over two decades, Tina led Buzz Marketing Group, an agency she founded at, wait for it, 16 years old. Yep. You heard right, 16 years old, with clients like Dell, the Oprah Winfrey Network, Kroger, Apple, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, and American Eagle, just to name a few. And as if that is not impressive enough, Tina is also the author of seven books, including the best-selling tween fiction series, Mackenzie Blue, its 2020 spinoff series, The Z-Files, and the marketing handbook, Chasing Youth Culture and Getting It Right. I invited Tina to be a guest on my show today to discuss how she became, as she calls it, an accidental entrepreneur and a successful one at that. And those are my words. I wanted to learn about her Elevation Tribe, and I was curious to get her point of view on how diversity has changed the world of branding. Tina, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to have you here. Welcome to Branding Matters. Thank you, Jolie. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, well, it's lovely to have you. So you have quite an impressive resume, and I'm super excited to have you on today. You founded Buzz Marketing Group at the ripe old age of 16 years old, when most girls are out not even thinking about business. You started this incredible business. So can you tell us about it and what motivated you to start it? Very honestly tell you up front, I was an accidental entrepreneur. I wanted to be a fashion writer and at 15 took a job writing for the New Girl Times and I'd seen an ad in Seventeen Magazine and uh, was hired as a product review editor. And so that's how I started my career, trying products. And that turned into- At 16. At 16, yeah. And I quickly realized like, this is the gig, right? You get free stuff to give your opinion. And then I was getting so much that I had to get friends involved. And that became doing surveys and and crunching numbers and writing reports. And before I knew it, I was in the market research business and had no clue even then that that was a thing until a client. And I say with air quotes, because again, I'd gotten free product and given a report. She said to me, I want you to know something. I just paid someone $25,000 for market research. And what you and your friends did is 10 times better you have a business and now you've got to go figure it out. And I was, again, very lucky, right time, right place. I had just started college. I was taking an intro to business course with the head of the department. And I went to see her during her office hours and told her what I was doing. The next semester, I took an independent study with her and she really helped me formalize the business. And then it was just, you know, two decades of writing the right waves at the right time. You know, when I started the business, it's all about teen, you know, teen people, teen Vogue, Backstreet Boys, sync. And then those teenagers grew up and became millennials. And I was just kind of always in the right sweet spot. And so, you know, that's how an accidental business became a top millennial marketing agency. That's fantastic. So I have to back up for a second. You said you started college, but you were at 16 when you started college. No, no. You're saying- so, yeah. Sorry. When I, so for two years, I was just kind of gigging and had all these clients and doing this okay. like fun thing that I didn't know could make me money. And that's then amazing. 
got serious about it, I was like, oh, there's like serious money here. So not only did you start this business at 16 years old, but you're also a best-selling author. You wrote two series, Mackenzie Blue in 2020, and then it spin off The Z Files. Oh. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know much about Mackenzie Blue. I don't have daughters, but I hear it's like a huge, huge popular hit with teenage girls. So can you share that with me? That was just, I was doing marketing for a publisher and they said, you should write something. And I ended up coming up with this idea idea about a 12-year-old girl who's trying to survive middle school and her really diverse group of friends and a best friend who just moved to Paris. And and yeah, that series went on to sell hundreds of thousands of copies. And I was still running my agency, so I didn't really have any time to dedicate to it. Um, And then what happened is I sold my audio rights to um, Audible. And I kind of felt like the series had a second life. And what we ended up doing instead was I went uh, and partnered with Target and we did the spinoff, The Z Files, which was released. uh, The first book was released last year. We've had two releases this year. uh, And it's been great, you know, to continue almost, you know, for me, almost 15 years later, the same story, but with the character in a different life stage. And so I love Z now living outside of London in the Cotswolds and going to her really cool creative arts boarding school. And I I just love um, still creating around her and kind of a new tribe of friends. But uh, I just, I love this character. I love who she's becoming uh, now as a teenager and she's really, really fun. So is there any part of you in Mackenzie Blue? I'm sure there are parts of my personality. I think for me, the way she loves her friends. She's so loyal to her friends. It's definitely me. The way that she's like not always totally together is definitely me in some way. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm constantly like reiterating and figuring, iterating and figuring things out. And I also think that, you know, the way she kind of approaches some of her issues, how she's looking for help and looking to do those, like kind of process through it. It's definitely me. But yeah, I just think her, the way she loves her friends, it's definitely big part of my personality. And also that like talking things out. I I have five younger siblings and I definitely think that's a big part of our family philosophy is that we talk through things and deal with things. And so I definitely think that's probably in, in the series as well. Oh, that's great. And you're the oldest of five kids? I'm the oldest of six. Yeah, of six. Oh, right. You have five siblings. And what do your parents do? They're both retired now. So oh, are they? What did they do when they were? So my dad uh, spent his career at Lockheed Martin. And then after he retired, he uh, took a job as a teacher's aide in an elementary school. And you can say uh, he was definitely missing the six of us. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> goodness. That. And my mom spent her career really in like management, focused on like the, the organizational side and, and admin. And she loves admin. And then she, I, I love my parents always having second career. And my mom has taken on like different roles in in hospitality management. And now she just decided her love. She loves Disney. And she's like, I took a course to train in customer service for Disney. And we're like, what? She's like, I just love it. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Well, good for her. Why not? Love that. Like now that the six of us are gone, they're like living their best lives. (laughs) And just deciding that these these are things they want to do. So I, I think it's great. And I definitely see parts of my personality. Like I was explaining how my mom taught me how to write a professional letter and taught me kind of all of those business skills that I really needed for success back in the day. And I can see it now. It's just like what she loves. She just loves anything that's administrative or if it's planning a big trip for a hundred people. Like she's, she just loves those kind of things. Do you love those kind of things too? I do. I like logistics yeah. a lot. Love strategy. I'm a very creative person, but we know as marketers, it's, it's a common marketing is an art and a science. And I think I like both sides equally. You know, I love research. I love to create art that's informed. So I definitely am not a person who like 
just writes a book because it's like, oh, I, I love this. It's like, well, I take a lot of time studying the consumer and where he or she is, what they need. And then I start to craft something creatively from that data. And, and so I have a hard time with the idea that I'm an artist in any way, because I really think about how strategically I'm applying those skills. So let's talk about storytelling, because obviously you love to yeah. tell great stories. You have best-selling books. And a big part of branding is using stories to connect your brand with your customer. So what do you think makes a great story? And what are some tips that you could share? Yeah. So I think with storytelling, number one, I think good storytelling has gotten a lot harder because we don't have a completely captive audience the way we used to almost 12, 20 years ago. You know, so I often hear when people say, oh, this person's the next Oprah or that person's the next Oprah. Um, I always say there is no next Oprah, right? Because we're never going to have a time again where we're all focused on watching one hour of TV a certain time every day where we give any person that much of our attention to set the landscape and conversation. And so I think that there are so many places for content to be these days, right? And it's great because it op opens up so many opportunities for creators, but it also means that our audience has thousands, if not tens of thousands of decisions about what content to consume. And so I think that what makes a good story, understanding that to be niche is really great and, and bringing that on, right? How often do we hear people say, I want this to go to everyone, but I think the bigger opportunity is to saying, I just want to talk to women in business. I just want to talk to tween girls. You know, that's why I don't write YA. It's why I don't craft stories for other audiences because I've spent so much time getting to know this girl and what makes a compelling story for her. I can't tell you the first thing about what makes a compelling story for a young adult audience because that's just not my audience. And maybe there are four different things I need to do than what I do for my middle grade reader. But I think good storytellers understand their audience. They understand the needs and wants of that audience. And then they understand what channels and platforms are most relevant for that audience. You know, there are some audiences, like if I were going to talk to female small business owners today, the first place I'd go to have a conversation with them is Pinterest, you know, understanding that Pinterest isn't a social media platform, right? It's not Facebook or Instagram. It is really this beautiful search engine that uses art in this really amazing way. And by the way, most people are not paying attention to it the way they should. So it gives a small business owner a huge runway to create a very loyal audience. And so that's different than if I were to make something for YA, I would probably go straight to TikTok, right? And so I think when we talk about what makes it, it's not even just that you have the right story. It's that you then funnel that right story through the exact right channel to get to your intended audience. So when you're telling your stories, you know, a lot of people talk about when brands tell stories, it's being authentic. You hear this a lot lately, right? It's make sure that you're authentic in your storytelling and you know that's how you're going to connect with other people. What do you say about that? You know, as a marketer, I think that there is authenticity versus authenticitude. Never heard that before. <laughs> a really good example. Um, you look at like Hollister, right? And it says founded in 1893 or has 1890. Like we know Hollister was not founded in 1893. They've done authenticitude very, very well. And I think sometimes there was a period where people thought that was bad. I don't think that's bad 
if you really own your brand and stick to it. And and you look at like shows like remember like Laguna Beach versus like VOC. So one is a reality show, the other is a scripted TV show. And they both one achieved it with authenticity, one with authenticity light, right? But both did really really well with the audience at that time. And so I think it's okay that goes back to the storytelling, right? And and it, like I write about fictional characters, right? So I want an authentic voice to come through, but I also realize that I'm creating authenticitude, creating this fictional world where my average girl is not going to private boarding school in the Cotswolds, right? But she loves having that escapism of reading about Z's crazy life. And so my job is to deliver high entertainment, aspiration, fun, and then to also have a certain portion of that content feel attainable to the reader, right? And that's where the science comes in for me of figuring out how much of the story needs to be relatable and attainable versus what's my job as an entertainer. It's always a balance for me of figuring out where do we need to be authentic and where do we need to infuse, you know, the fiction and the creativity that the reader is looking for. Okay. So how would you take that? Because you're talking about fantasy, like you said, these are fiction. And how would you transfer that, let's say, to brands? How could they go to market and be authentic and tell their story? I think that there's been such a push towards authenticity that we actually do don't want. Like their average consumer does not want to see their life reflected at all. We do not shop to see our life reflected. We shop because we aspire to a better version of ourselves and what we feel we have at the moment. Right. And so we love to watch reality shows because they're not authentic because they're just a little bit more elevated. Like we don't live like the real housewives of Atlanta or Beverly Hills. And we love to consume that content because we can relate to being housewives, right? And having friends, but our friends don't do that thing. And so I think where the authenticity comes in is it's very smart at saying these three things need to be relatable. And then we're going to go crazy with these other 20 that makes it must-see TV. I'll give you an example. With McDonald's, we want McDonald's to always sell us French fries. No one is going to McDonald's because they want to have the healthiest salad they've ever had, right? This is not the brand ethos. And so, you know, I want you to make me the best fry I've ever had because when I'm walking in and I am now not doing my keto, whatever I'm doing, I want to enjoy every bite of that fry. Like, I don't want you serving me up anything that's not what I come here for, you know? If you want to say that you are selling me happiness, I'm all in. If you want to say that you're selling me entertainment, I'm all in. Are you selling me health? Like, really? That's what I would say. Not really. But then how is that authenticity? Like if there, if you go in because... What, what it, it's being authentic. I think not all brands, that's why I said they're very different ways of doing business. Not right. all brands buy into authenticity at all. You know, I think that when I think about that, it's the idea that you see it a lot in fashion. We have to create a persona of who's coming in, right? We have to create this world for the customer. Not every brand has to do that. If you're going into a Walmart, what authenticity do they need to create? They don't because their brand ethos is around value pricing, right? They don't need, they're not selling you a style or ambiance or any of that. It's very much when you look at like Target, right? A company I love to do business with. They are selling you style as part of the brand promise, right? You know that you are getting these elevated basics that come with style. And they do that and deliver on that very well. When we're talking about authenticity versus authenticity, sometimes that's why I can say a lot of authenticity with beauty or fat. These are places where because they're building in 
that level of authenticity, you're now paying for that, right? Hmm. Because we can look at every character, like category and see where you're not paying, you're just getting the good, right? You're just getting, you know, if we look at a McDonald's burger versus five guys versus the gourmet burger, we can see at each level how you're baking in more of brand, brand ethos to deliver on a higher price point, right? You just end up having some businesses at scale, whether it's a McDonald's or a Walmart, where they actually, because they deliver so good on what the brand promises, they don't have to build the other stuff. That's not part of their business. And I find that when brands try to get into that, right, where they're like, we've got the money now, we want to play in this space, it doesn't always translate because you forget why the customer is there. Forget that the customer is fine with the burger and fries. That's why they come there. You don't need to build all this other stuff. And if you can do the other stuff, that's good. But I think sometimes we get so caught up in the other stuff that we forget why why customers are coming to us. One more thing I want to throw at you, because I find this so interesting. I've never heard about this before. And I'm getting like all these ding, ding, dings, and it's awesome. Okay. So let's talk about a brand like Starbucks. Authentitude or authenticity? Absolutely authentic. Right? A barista, a whole <laughs> terminology. But isn't you that part of branding are- though? Like, isn't that what yeah. it's all about is creating that you talk about but not always, because again, look at the price point, right? You can go to get a Mick cafe for a dollar in some chains. You cannot buy any Starbucks drink. I mean, now the average drink is costing me $6. Well, you if know? we call it not Starbucks, we call it star five bucks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Oh, it's like, and so I think when you start to deliver on, and that's what we're calling like a luxury product, right? We haven't even talked about real luxury goods. But when you get into that category, it's like you see more and more and more of this authenticity or the story. And sometimes authenticity is really like what I said in the, the earlier example of like, this brand was not founded in 1893. Yeah. But you, you see those numbers everywhere. Yeah. And then you go back and you're like, yeah. it's a marketing kind of strategy or part of their branding. Yeah. Interesting. But when I look at what Starbucks does with their vernacular, right. And how they then started to translate, well, you just can come obviously pre-pandemic this is the place to work that now there's so much value being given that you don't care if you're paying five, $6 for the coffee, because mm-hmm. now, you're, now I don't need an office. I can go work from anywhere. I can do, you know, then it becomes, well, they've really delivered on the value. And I paid $6 where I, if I rented an office, I'd be paying $25 a day, you know, then, then that conversation shifts. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was really interesting and eye-opening. And we could do a whole episode just on that because I have so much more, but I want to move on. I want to talk about your other business because you are just, talk about your mom or your parents having different businesses. I mean, (laughs) clearly the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Let's talk about relevant media. So when did you start relevant media and what motivated you to do that? Yeah, so started it in 2019 and really formalized it last year. And and the goal there is to really focus on representation in media. And and I focus on three main categories, Um, tweens, obviously, we talk a lot about my tween products, and then entrepreneurship, and then a category I call culturist, which just really almost gives me the freedom to do a lot of stuff with influencers and people I'm fascinated by and lifestyle experts. And so I focus a lot on the book side. I have um, in total under contract and and titles to come out over the next few years, I'll have a total of 17 books in the middle grade space. And then I'm working on a few other adult books. And then on the entrepreneurship side with Elevation Tribe, working on a TV show, I'm working on a book focused on entrepreneurship. And then on the culture side, we're just starting to do some really exciting things around lifestyle experts and bringing some brands to life. And so all focused on diversity and inclusion and, and really equity, the equity piece too. And 
how, you know, it's one thing to have the conversation, but it's another thing to create projects and, and properties that really start to create equity for so many others. And so you mentioned Elevation Tribe. Is that sort of an entity of relevant media? And what is Elevation Tribe? Yeah, so I started Elevation Tribe uh, in 2018. And uh, it was at a time where I saw all of these very- Oh, things. so before Ele- relevant media. Yeah, it was, relevant. again, oh, I had okay. a, like I had my Mackenzie Blue before, which is what led to the creation of a company. Do you ever sleep? <laughs> I, I think way more often than people think because oh, really? I have to be rested. Oh, that's a whole part of the elevation approach, which is how okay. I approach business and life and uh, way, way more than people think. I can't function without proper sleep. So it's not even a something that like I want. It's yeah. I, I, just, I can't even make good decisions without it. And so it's the only thing that's just non-negotiable all the time. But to answer your question, I, there are all these female communities that were popping up And I felt that we really needed a place that focused on some really specific nuances based in the workplace by women of color. And so when I created Elevation Tribe, it was really to create content community and experiences that would help women of color launch, grow, and lead in companies. And so you wanted to start up. It's how do I bring together all my amazing friends who have done it, who maybe don't have time to mentor, but have so much to offer? How can I create a forum that gives them the ability to give that great advice that allows me the place to just say, here's everything I wish I could tell you about starting a business. And earlier this year, we launched a course called the Elevation Approach. And and so it's been great for me to kind of get all of this stuff down. Like I just taught a masterclass last week on ICA's your ideal customer avatar. And I was able to give all of the students like, and here's a workbook to help you work through how I figure out who an ideal customer should be. And so, um, you know, that platform has really afforded me the opportunity to create all of the tools I wish I had as a Black woman in business back when I was starting and the connection to hear from so many of the women who have done it, who understand our our very unique nuances and challenges around network, around net worth. And so the TV show will also really, in a, I hope, very cool way, explore, you know, me going into businesses that may be struggling and bringing in an elevation tribe to say, here's how we're going to fix your business. And hopefully all of you at home can now see how you can make some changes in your business to make them more profitable, more thriving, and also to create business that works for you in your life, because we always want work-life harmony. And so people always say, you're doing so much, you're doing all these things. I said, but there's not one thing I'm doing that's out of alignment with my work-life harmony. And when anything does come in to disrupt it, then I just don't do that thing anymore. And so, you know, that's what I hope for all entrepreneurs is you get to a place where you have really great work-life harmony. Oh, I totally agree with you. I'm the same way. I, I'm the same. I wear a million hats as well. So that's why when I said that to you, because people always ask me between work and podcasts and kids and, you know, everything else, it's busy. But I, I feed off it and I, I agree with you. I think they all work together all harmoniously. But I have to stop you because you said TV show. And I'm like, what? Tell me about that. Yeah, I can't say much about oh, it. Okay. <laughs> you started it. So what can you share? I can say that there's one in the works and, and that it will, you know, focus on helping um, entrepreneurs who are struggling in their business and bring in an elevation tribe to uh, help make it better. That is amazing. Okay, so is this TV show going to be authenticude or authentic? <laughs> oh, no. I think when you're dealing with businesses in crisis, I think that's a very authentic situation. Yeah. Uh, I, I, think I was that, just trying to see yeah. if it was going to be a reality show. I was trying to get some information out of you. Yeah, so. it's definitely not going to be a scripted show. And so okay. I think the fact that it's unscripted, you know, will definitely be reality. Um, 
And obviously they're the thing I love about reality is you get to clean things up, right? So you're going to have a great office. You're going to have a great space, but the situations are a hundred percent going to be real. And I think how we fix them is a hundred percent going to be authentic too. And that's, what's going to make the show. Right. And I think that's where you have to know is, you know, we're not, if I were making a fashion brand, um, obviously that wouldn't be a thousand percent authentic because you need to create a lot of aspiration. And sometimes we need to, as marketers create that magic, you know, but in, in reality show, the magic is in how you bring together a tribe of people that can, that can solve the problem, right? That's where you need to have this non-manufactured, you know, you either can work well together or not. It's, and, and, and that's what I love about this kind of show that I came up with is that it's not about who's investing or who's not investing, or it, it's really about how do you solve the problem and letting people in on that part that you don't always see, right? You don't always, you see the before and after. And I think we realize that the education is in that middle, right? It's in, I see where they were. And I see where you ended up, but, but I can learn something as the viewer, if you expose me to the middle and that's, you know, so that might be messy and that might not be fun. And I may be arguing with consultants who say we need to do a versus B, but I also do that knowing the viewer is going to benefit from the real life conversations of what helps a business survive and thrive versus what's the nice to have. And, you know, going back to storytelling, I think when you were describing this, that's what you're doing. You're taking us on a journey with you, right? And I think that's a great story when you have a beginning and maybe there's challenges or you're setting it up and then the middle is the best part, right? That's where the meat is. That's where all the excitement happens. And then the ending hopefully is going to be a good ending and sometimes it may not be. So that's the journey that you're bringing people along with you. And I think that's what attracts people and wants them to go on that journey with you and obviously wants you to succeed. It's exciting. Well, you have to keep me posted on what it's all about. So I've heard you say that you've built your entire career based on the idea that we make most of our purchasing decisions based on what a friend recommends, right? So back to talking about influencers. So have influencers in your mind, do you think they've become like the new infomercial where you see all over social media, you see actors and all people from all works of life trying to sell something online, right? What's your take on that? I think everything goes through cycles. I think that there was a cycle when it was new and fresh and so groundbreaking that it worked really, really well. And then I think we got to this place where they're so ubiquitous that you don't know what moves the needle anymore. And now we're getting to the place of seeing what happens where we build people who don't necessarily, let's say they're not necessarily subject experts or haven't, you know, they became an expert at a tool. Then when real controversy hits, and they don't know how to manage it, we're all surprised, but we don't realize that that was not the skill set they were built for, right? That they just weren't built to be companies or deliver or, or know how to handle some of this backlash. And we've seen it time and time again, right? We, we call it in the US, cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we don't realize is, you know, brands don't always get canceled or they know how to weather the storm because they have teams of people who are experts at how do we communicate? How do we articulate? How do we speak to this? And they can figure and manage that. And so I have felt for a while that I really like micro-influencers. I really am intrigued by people who maybe have 50,000 followers, but 50,000 people who are incredibly engaged and very loyal to that person. I'm really fascinated by curators, you know, by people who spent careers curating or creating some of the things that we all enjoy and don't actually know the people behind who are now getting into their own space because they've been doing it forever. I think that when we become experts at a tool and then the tool 
kind of backfires on us. And then we realize, like, I didn't really know how, how I was doing this thing in the first place. That's problematic for a lot of people. It's problematic for the influencer who isn't equipped to handle those storms, right? Who everybody messes up, everybody, you know, oops, my bad, we make a mistake. But when companies make a mistake, there is a whole infrastructure to support how to navigate that. And I feel oftentimes influencers, even if they're Hollywood celebrities in some stages, if we're seeing these things happen, it's like, where's the infrastructure around this person to help them navigate how to figure this out? And so that's, what's really scary to me. I used to always have this saying where I said, you know, you'll never find the Nike swoosh drunk in an alley, right? <laughs> There's so much control around that. Of course. Um, and so I find that as a very type A personality marketer, business owner, I don't know, it just makes me tense up to think about putting and investing so much into a person that hasn't had the proper training around how to be the brand, right? Because when we think about these big brands that we love, all joking aside, there are thousands of people, whether it's the Dell Technologies of the world, there are teams just dedicated to how these brands show up in the public role versus product rollout and all of that. And, and I think that it's unfair to think that people need to be capable of generating this kind of income and, and not make mistakes when we're all in this very new undiscovered reality, you know? And so now we're just seeing through the first cycle, some really big mistakes. And then what's the knee jerk? this brand's canceled, this line's canceled, this... And I'm like, well, as a retail partner, you know, maybe we all need to take a step back and think about how do we invest and how do we create infrastructure so that we're... Right, because when I do, like, for example, I won't say the technology company I was working for, but there was a social media command center. We could measure at any day, time, moment what the sentiment was about this brand. Were people happy with the brand, neutral to the brand, or upset with the brand? And we had tools in place to figure out how we we're going to mitigate that risk. We don't do that with influencers. Someone can put up a bad post. Someone can bully online. Canceled. Next moment. you know. And so I love experts. I love learning things from people. I love that whether it's how to style a shirt, how to plant better flat. Like I love that that comes from people. But I think we have to do a really good job or a much better job of creating infrastructure around people as brands to make sure that they're fully supported and that we're not just leaving it up to them on how to do this. Because there's no brand that's a major brand in the world where the face of the brand is the one doing all of that. And we ask influencers to do that all the time. I love that you said that. I totally agree with you. I mean, you see it all over social media. You see it on Instagram where you see, you know, everyone's on there, like I said, trying to promote and sell a product. Where do you see the future going with influencers? Yeah. Well, I'm also very opinionated as I'm working. Oh, I couldn't tell that you're. I I mean, I I love that about you. I have some skin in that game, but where I am really focused. So here's the way I've looked at it. I still believe, and I have from the beginning of my career that we do things because friends tell us to, and and it's statistically proven 90% of our purchasing decisions. I think the definition of a friend is changing, but for me, I want to be really focused on partnering and working with people who are experts in what they do and have done it for quite some time. So that means that if I'm working on a new brand with a landscape architect, that has been their career, right? They're not someone who's gone on Instagram because they love plants and could get hundreds of thousands of followers. It's the person that maybe has 2000 followers, but they know that they know that they know that business. And, and I know that they can create products and services that are going to make your life better or elevated in some way. And so I am almost thinking about how I retrofit for the audience. I am much more focused on 
the method or the zone of genius or what they know that other people need to learn. And so I've kind of walked away from the noise because what's happened is we've become so captivated by the size of audience that we haven't dissected how is that person built audience. And the people I'm really drawn to right now just blow my mind and how they, you know, and there are a lot of people who I'm friends with, but I'm introduced, like I just went on a trip. Um, I was in Africa for three weeks. I did two weeks in Namibia and a week in Mozambique, totally planned by a friend who I did not know had the skill set. Um, I just traveled to over a hundred countries. She was head of travel rewards at Uber and just recently left. And I sat down and said, I want to build a brand with you because your knowledge of how people want to travel, what they, the tools they need to have the best experience, what the luggage should look like, feel like to have the best. I want to build with you, right? You had no followers up to two weeks ago, but that knowledge, I want everybody I know to have access to your brain and how you're thinking about this. So I, so to me, it's like, we have to get back to the people who know the most, they may not photograph the best and look at, but, but there's going to be a way of us to fuse that intelligence with the tools, right? So it needs to be much more about the person than someone's ability to manipulate the tools. And, and that to me is where we have to find this happy medium where we have been fascinated by someone's ability to understand tools. And then when it, when the, like, you know, what hits the fan, they don't have the infrastructure because we never planned for that versus me now saying, I'm going to go with the people who have existed in corporate. They actually understand the infrastructure. So not if, but when that situation happens, it triggered know how to deal with this, right? I've dealt with this my whole career behind the scenes. Now I just have to do it for myself. It's it's very different than, I don't know what's happening. I don't even know how to deal with this. I just started as an influencer. Tech. I, I, I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what's happening is people are having, I don't what's happening to me. And there's no one to say, we have to protect around that. And so um, I don't think we throw the babies out with the bathwater and say influencers wrong. I think we have to take a step back collectively and say, who are we elevating and why? You know, I think we've seen during a pandemic that the people who were elevated were the smartest people who could speak to what was happening, right? It didn't matter if they looked great on great camera, right? It was like, who is the person that understands how I need to disinfect my home? That's who I want to talk with. And then we can obviously design brands and product. We we will do what we do as marketers and make it beautiful and make it great. But, and you think about some of the brands that we love or that have lasted, how did they start? You know, Colonel Sanders isn't some great looking guy from KFC, right? He just had some secret original recipe that just everybody loved what he made. And now we've created this legacy brand, you know, and it goes back to some of these strong brands. It was really the understanding of what a customer needed at that time paired with the exact solution that then created, you know, these mass brands. And so I think we're getting back to that place of saying, what's the secret ingredient? What's the secret? Everybody, right? All these big companies we love, they have their secret recipe that only, you know, we have to get back to understanding that secret sauce and what separates products and then really creating more of that. It's funny, you talked about followers and how, you know, there's so much emphasis on numbers. And just because someone has 400,000 followers that they what they say must be right, right? Versus really understanding how they even got there. I think it's okay to buy the media. But again, it's- but buying followers, do you think that's the same thing as buying media? I think it depends on what is the secret sauce. You can buy, you can have all the, I always used to joke, my joke as a marketer was like, I can lead a horse to water. If your water sucks, it's not my problem, right? And I think that you have to start with a foundation of a method, a product, of something that works. 
you know? And I think that every day we see people accelerate growth through buying media, right? Media is all about eyeballs and awareness and attention and come here, don't go there. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the goods, you can buy all the media in the world that you want. You can buy all the followers in the world that you want. If you don't have content, if when they land on your page, you haven't been thoughtful about what are your five buckets of content? What are you speaking to? What are they going to get from you that they're not getting from? Like, I'll give you an example for me. Um, I had a really hard time and struggled a lot for me personally with my Instagram when I couldn't travel because a big part for me with Instagram is telling the story of all the places I get to go. And I'm so inspired by travel and it really feeds the creativity of everything I do. And so I realized my audience does not care about hearing about business tips from me. They want like when I was on my three week trip and I'm showing them shots from Namibia and all the, that's what people want from me. And so I have to be really responsive to say, maybe Instagram as a channel does not feed my other businesses, but it just feeds, my audience just needs this thing from me. And so I think the buying is okay, but if you start, and there's so many businesses we saw that were digital first, right? That when, you know, things started happening with Facebook algorithms and Facebook is on one hand, making things way better for us as consumers it's really disruptive to the advertising algorithm. But I say to those businesses, if you build a business around an algorithm, you didn't actually build around a customer need or want. That's not Facebook's problem. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to tell you that. I would say the same for buying followers. Buy all you want. But if you don't deliver on any promise to those people once they land on your content, you've wasted your money. You're not going to make that money back. You're going to have a vanity account. And then when it's time to actually tap into that customer loyalty, there just is not, you know? And so I don't think the buying is, the, I don't think any of that. The issue is, do you have the content or, or, or are you delivering inspiration, something, a reason for people to come to your feed? Totally agree. Because like I said, you see all over social media, just all these accounts with huge followers or influencers, and then you listen to what they have to say and their content isn't really what you signed up for. So I totally agree. And then you just end up unfollowing them anyway. So exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to, um, you know, you mentioned, you touched on it really briefly about diversity. So being a woman of color, how do you feel the way brands are addressing diversity in their branding? What's your take on that? Yeah. So I always find that I feel like if you're a bigger brand who touches a bigger consumer segment, this is something that you've had to deal with always because you need to get people in the door. You need to really understand what that looks like. I would say, again, thinking about Target years ago, right? Before diversity, inclusion, equity became a conversation, they understood that people like me want to go to Target and buy products for my hair, right? There used to be one place I could go buy. It was literally called Beauty Supply, where I could find black hair care products. And now I can walk into any Target and find aisles full of product that works for my hair. I don't think that that was because diversity and inclusion matters. I think it was because they understood the bottom line of who was coming into their stores and what they needed and what was going to help grow that business. And once they started and you saw breakthrough brands like Carol's Daughter, Shea Moisture, that's now created huge opportunity for many other brands. So now when we start to talk about very niche brands, right? Luxury brands who, by the way, don't realize that their audiences are so diverse. I mean, Black women alone, the buying power and spending power of Black women, I don't think most people even understand. And so I do think there are definitely spaces that need to do way better. But I find that 
so many companies really like, and I'm talking about really, really mass brands, the Coca-Cola's of the world, the McDonald's, you know, McDonald's has a huge ownership network that are black owners of the McDonald's franchises, right? These businesses that um, are way more dealing with the average everyday person understands the need. They understand the need for diversity, inclusion, equity, because it comes from the customer set. I find that the tension is what if your customers or your key demographic aren't people of color? For example, high-end luxury, sustainable fashion brands. We saw that with Reformation, you know, and there was a Reformation referendum around that founder of like, we don't like how you're doing business. And so um, I'm not saying, I mean, I was a black woman who I just bought a Reformation dress the week before. And I was like, what happened? Oh my gosh. You know, but that is where it's harder. When you as a marketer say, I don't even have that consumer in my top five consumers what do I need to do there? That's a really interesting conversation. I think that as I study younger generations, as we all have this data, we know that America is only getting more and more diverse and that that diverse, diversity, inclusion, equity, especially when you go to younger and younger and younger consumer sets, it is just the way it needs to be. I think the hard conversation in our industry is what do we do with general market agencies and diverse agencies when they almost really need to swap? What is general market anymore? You know, when we look at Gen Z, the most diverse group in history, they are almost equal. People of color versus, you know, white Americans. What do you do with that? The whole framing of our industry needs to be completely changed. Who's taking that on? Mm -hmm. If you are the client... And that's where I go back to the clients are the ones that have to fix that. They have to now say, and, and I think it will happen a generation at a time. I think if you are a business really focused on Gen Z, I don't see how your general market agency does not flip with who would have been your multicultural agency. That, that's just natural. It has to happen because that dialect, but what's driving that consumer segment, we now statistically can see is very different. And so I think that these are very nuanced conversations. I think that they involve an incredible amount of money. They involve an incredible amount of assets, equity, all these things having to shift. And we know that whenever you start to shift these things, it's complex, it's nuanced, it's complicated. But I really believe what I've always loved about marketing is that the customer always finds a way to guide those conversations. As marketers, we will do what we need to do to get that sale and to meet that customer's need, right? And it's similar to what I just said about Target. I would love to say, well, they just wanted to create a more... I'm sure that that was such a great benefit to create a more shop, a diverse shopping experience. But the reality was we can serve a customer set in a really special way and get that dollar in our store that was going to all of these different places because they did not have one place to come buy all of their hair care products. That's a great example of where you see diversity, inclusion, equity also meet a consumer shopping experience, deliver on that experience and create revenue. And that's, to me, that's what diversity, inclusion, and equity does at its best. It creates, it doesn't take away from. And so it's going to take a lot of work from really smart people to sit down and say, how do we make the shift in an industry that was designed to serve a customer literally back from the 1950s, right? There's a lot of change that needs to happen, but I, I think that that change will be driven by the customers. And, and by that, I mean the McDonald's and Pepsi's of the world who are driving these Nikes of the world who are driving these massive budgets to say, we need to look at our spend a different way. We need to bring different people to the table to have a conversation of what our media needs to look like. But I love the way you said, you know, it's not going to happen overnight and people need to, brands need to sit down and companies need to talk about it and how they're the best way to execute it and bring it so it's all part of their brand. 
What about all these marketing and branding you see right now all over again, TV and social media, where all of a sudden overnight, it seems everybody was doing it. And all of a sudden, you're seeing all this diversity. Do you think there, you know, and again, I'm going back to the authenticity, how much of that do you think was really part of their branding as far as being authentic? Or was it just like trying to do what is the right thing to do right now, because there's this demand and people are watching you. And if you want to keep your customers and keep your loyal customers, you better get on the bandwagon and start showing diversity ASAP. Anytime, any situation that gets us to look at a situation is welcome. If it's knee jerk and it's a knee jerk that moves us in the right direction, I'm here for it. I think that there's way more work to do. I think that we are in a bubble of talking about diversity and inclusion because to shift to the equity conversation is a very uncomfortable shift because in some ways people think for you to have more means I have to have less, right? There isn't yet this idea of we can just make a bigger pie. I think we're still focused on it's your slice or my slice, not just how do we make a bigger, better pie. And so I think if you're a bandwagoner, great. I'm so happy to welcome you to the conversation because it's still the conversation that needs to happen. And when I think about representation, even thinking middle grade fiction, yes, I'm thinking about the fact that less than 10% of protagonists in middle grade books are girls of color. But I'm also thinking about also bringing to light the stories of learning and attention issues. I'm also thinking about how we bring to light the diversity of families, right? And so for me, I'm working through a concept right now. I'm really focused on how do I diversify these families and also start to really talk about same-sex couples, right? And, And marriages and bring that to light in middle grade in a way that feels so authentic and, again, the authenticity is there, even if the authenticitude is, <laughs> and now I've created this utopian world where all of these different girls from different families and faiths get together, right? And so I think it's a great conversation. I welcome it. I think it is such an unfortunate set of events that got us to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Label, like kind of layer on the most unfortunate event. You layer on the most inf- unfortunate global event, right? So we were all in this place of being able to sit down and look at what was happening and say, wow, right? There's so much. And then, and then we all sat and watched the piling on. And then as people were trying to fix, they were getting canceled because people were saying, actually, what you're talking about isn't even authentic because you did this to me when I was working for you. And it, it was just a oh, whole, yeah. like, wow, right? Yeah. And now that we've kind of brought all of that up, now we can take a step back and say, how do we continue to address this in a way that for me, I'm kind of past the diversity and inclusion conversation, meaning we have checked the boxes that that has to happen. What I'm really focused on is the equity piece and what that means for all of us. What does that mean for women? What does that mean for young people who constantly inspire culture? How do they participate in culture in a way? How do they get the financial benefit of that inspiration? And then also looking at all the different ways that we show up as humans that also need to be reflected in our culture in a way that feels like I see myself in the books that I'm reading. And that means a lot of different things. It doesn't just mean I see myself as a black girl. What if you're a black girl who comes from a really wealthy family? What if you're someone like myself who grew up, you know, whose parents are still married 42 years later? We need to see those examples as well. So it means a lot of different things. And I don't think any one person can take all of that on. But again, someone who's really skilled at answering this question might have a totally different answer for you when they can look at all the data, all of the research of how people are really moving the needle. They may say, I don't think enough is happening at all. I'm looking as a very optimistic marketer who believes that customers 
customers at the end of the day have such a powerful voice and the more diversified the end user and buyer becomes, the more diversified I believe we we have to become to serve those needs. Well, for someone who said you didn't really have much of an answer, I think you were bang on. I loved your answer. I believe everything that you said, as long as you're talking about it and starting the conversation now and it's going in the right direction, I think that's really what it's all about. So thank you for sharing that. You are just a dynamo. You're so interesting to talk to. I've really been enjoying this conversation so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So if people want to learn more about you, Tina, where is the best way for them to find you? I would say uh, start with tinawells.com. You'll find all my handles there and you can subscribe to a newsletter I have that has business tips and everything. It comes out once a, once a week, although I'm about to drop a note to everyone telling them um, I'm taking a little time off as I have to live my own method, right? I have a lot of other worksheets and things that you can download and mini courses, and it's all free on my website. That's awesome. Well, and I'm excited to hear about this TV show. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to follow you. I guess maybe you'll share with us when the time I is ready, right? Will. So yeah. good luck with that. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. I hope I get to meet you one day. Where are you living right now? I live in South Jersey. So I'm just about 10 minutes outside of Philadelphia. And I recently moved. I, I, lived, I lived a little bit further in South Jersey, but I am definitely a South Jersey girl for sure. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. But most of all, I really hope you had some fun. This show is a work in progress, so please make sure to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to. And if you want to learn more about the Branding Badass, that's me, you can find me on social media under, you know it, Branding Badass. Thanks again, and until next time, Here's to all you badasses out there.